0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today we hear the music from the 1990 film Stanley and Iris. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome to 1990, everyone. John Williams' first score for 1990 reunited him with director Martin Ritt, who hired Williams to write music for Pete and Tilly and Conrack in the early 1970s. Both of those films came before the start of what we'll call Williams' golden age, and in the meantime, Ritt had turned Sally Field into a bona fide movie star with Norma Ray in 1979. That role earned Field her first Academy Award, and Ritt and Field worked together again for Backroads in 1981, and Murphy's Romance in 1985. If you watch any of Ritz's films, their strengths come from great performances by the actors underneath a fairly strong social message. And with the exception of the Oscar-winning song in Norma Rae, none of Ritz's films have memorable music in them, and as explored in the episodes for Pete and Tilly and Conrack, that was true for the most part even when John Williams was involved. As I mentioned in the episode discussing the score to Born on the 4th of July, Williams wrote the score to Stanley and Iris in March 1989, 11 months before the film was released. The plan was to have Stanley and Iris in theaters during the Christmas 1989 season, which would have put it in competition with his work on Spielberg's Always, also scheduled for a Christmas release. That explains why he wrote the score so early in the year. But there were a lot of bad marks given to Stanley and Iris during test screenings in fall 1989, and Martin Ritt decided to film a new ending. I'm not sure what the original ending was, but I have a feeling it was, spoiler alert, Stanley going to Detroit for a new job and never coming back. In the official version, Ritt decided to have Stanley come back for Iris, and the two live happily ever after with Iris' children in Detroit. Ritt managed to get two big-time actors for his film. Robert De Niro played against type as the soft-spoken Stanley, a cafeteria worker at a bakery who we learn is unable to read or write. And Jane Fonda played Iris, the sensible yet vulnerable widow who takes Stanley under her wing while the two form an unsteady romance. Just as he did with Pete and Tilly and Conrack, John Williams keeps the music in the background of the film. And though there's more music in this film... It often stays out of the way of two of the best actors who have ever lived. The great thing about Williams doing music for these quieter films is that the music is easier to examine without sound effects getting in the way. I completely understand when people explain that scores like Stanley and Iris are the reason why this period in John Williams' career shouldn't be counted as part of the Golden Age. But films like Monsignor were also done during this Golden Age so I don't think necessarily every score has to be a bombastic and energetic masterpiece to be counted as a great musical achievement. In this case, Williams does a lot with the score, and you just have to pay attention to it in order to find some of the beauty inside it, just like a painting. But the film itself is not perfect, despite some good moments by De Niro and Fonda. The main plot of teaching Stanley skips over a bunch of steps in teaching someone to read, and assumes we'll accept the progression Stanley makes in about a year's time. And it's Williams' job to help smooth over some of those bumps with his score, and he does it fairly well. There are two major musical themes in the film, and it's the one I'm going to associate with Stanley that I will talk about first. As a reminder, I'm not a fully trained musician, so I won't talk about chord progressions and melodic intervals too much since I don't have one of my very smart co-hosts joining me on this episode. Before I start talking about Stanley's theme, it's important to listen to it as played in a scene after Stanley loses his job at the bakery and starts taking odd jobs. The theme will start out in the flute, then move to trumpet and finally piano. It's a very tender piece of music for this point in Stanley's life. He was fired from his job at the bakery because Iris told his boss he couldn't read, and that presented a danger in the kitchen. By putting the theme in the trumpet briefly, it suggests Stanley's inner strength, though I suppose the flute and piano could imply, and I hope you'll forgive me for this, that Stanley is really a child due to his illiteracy. In many ways, the theme when performed on woodwinds or piano highlights his innocence, but also lacks full masculinity that a theme would normally have for a man his age. But there's something else I picked up on with this theme as I watched the film and heard the theme play out in several scenes. And it has a lot of similarities to the main theme from Star Wars. Now in Luke's theme, the music is trying to obtain a goal as the notes try to reach upward, fall down, try again, and then reach some melodic satisfaction. The same construct is there for Stanley's theme. Listen again as it is played on the piano, and you'll hear how the music symbolizes his attempts to fit into the world, especially later as he takes Iris as his reading tutor, how he often stumbles, and then there is a bit of resolution. Now, without the score sheets in front of me, I don't know if there's a perfect fifth melodic interval in there to suggest heroism as there is in Luke's theme, but I doubt it. In this period of his career, I think the reason why the scores don't resonate with fans as much is because Williams started to eliminate the perfect fifth in a lot of his scores, and with a theme like Stanley's theme, the use of a perfect fifth at the end of the melody would have worked wonderfully. I'm sure my friends with good ears can hear if there's a perfect fifth in there, so please let me know. And possibly the longest music cue in the film comes a bit earlier when Stanley offers Iris a ride home on his bicycle. This is a three minute scene that uses a variation on Stanley's theme since it's not really his scene alone. there's a main theme that gets a little more play through the film, and I'm going to call it a love theme, even though this is a love story that doesn't really take off until the third act. It's a large part of the film's opening titles, as we see the city where the film is set, and then the bakery where Stanley and Iris are working. Because the film is called Stanley and Iris, it's appropriate that this theme plays in the credits and not Stanley's theme. It's more beautiful, but I think you'll hear those stumbling notes to highlight the rocky journey that the romance will take. There's a scene about halfway through the movie that's all about Stanley, as he walks with Iris' son in the park, mentioning the scientific names of trees. It's one of those scenes I couldn't really believe, because even people who are well-read have a hard time with the scientific names of trees, yet Stanley describes the trees with such ease. And Williams does something interesting with this scene. Instead of scoring it with Stanley's theme, He uses the main theme for it, suggesting, I think, that he's becoming a part of Iris' life by bonding with her son. Stanley has a lot of potential in his life, despite his illiteracy. We find this out when he shows Iris a contraption that he built without instructions or training that I think would be useful in the bakery assembly line or maybe in the cafeteria where he used to work. They don't say. Again, even though this scene is about Stanley's life and his talents, Williams puts in the love theme. And of course, there's a scene at the end when Stanley finally reads full sentences. It takes place in a library, and though it comes almost out of nowhere, it's not a terrible scene because De Niro and Fonda handle it well. And once again, Williams decides to put the love theme in here. I think a more upbeat and, dare I say, heroic statement of Stanley's theme would have been a better choice. And perhaps Williams wrote music for the scene, leaning heavily on Stanley's theme. But this is what we get. I won't say that I agree with all of Williams' musical choices in this film. I do wish Stanley's theme got more play, because I like it more than the quote-unquote main theme or love theme. But musically, John Williams does make some good statements with the score, and I have to praise him for not phoning in on a project that probably had him rushing a bit between working on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, conducting in Boston, and writing two more scores in 1989. Stanley and Iris was a major box office bomb. It did not make a profit, and it looks like this is what compelled Jane Fonda to retire from acting for 15 years and be known mostly as the wife of TV mogul Ted Turner. If you look back at her filmography before Stanley and Iris, only two of her previous 12 films did not do well. She didn't really make a great comeback in 2005 with the lame comedy Monster-in-Law, which seemed like a ripoff of Meet the Parents, which incidentally had De Niro in the role Fonda would play. But she's bounced back nicely lately with the TV show Gracie and Frankly, and still acting in her 80s. As for De Niro, I mentioned that this was a major departure for him, playing Stanley. It was one of three roles he would unleash on the world in 1990, including a reunion with Martin Scorsese for the gangster epic Goodfellas, and playing a man who comes out of a decades-long catastonic state in Awakenings. These are three extremely different roles, and De Niro got an Oscar nomination for Awakenings, which I think was an acknowledgement of his work the entire year, though his performance in Awakenings was phenomenal in its own right. This would be Martin Ritt's final film. He died of a heart attack in December 1990. And like De Niro, Williams also had three films on his plate in 1990, and he had to assume three different musical identities for each of them. A year after he wrote and recorded the score to Stanley and Iris, but just a few months after finishing his work on Always, Williams sat down for his seventh Harrison Ford film, this time not set in space or featuring thrilling stunts. It was an adaptation of a popular book about a lawyer whose former lover is found murdered, The film is presumed innocent, and I'm sure it's another score that many John Williams fans have not really explored. Count me as one of them, but I'm going to rectify that in the next episode. Thanks everyone for listening today. And as you know, I appreciate all the emails you send me about your thoughts on the show, or just to tell about experiences you have had meeting John Williams, or about the effect his music has had on your life. Keep them coming to jeffswim at AOL.com. Until next time, everybody, the baton is down.